I want to continue in a series, The Forgotten Power of Purity, and this does carry on from the last few weeks, and if you were not here, some of it may not have context for you, but I encourage you to go listen. But first, I just want to share my heart with you. It's just something that I, I feel that just prophetically the Lord doing is something that He wants for His bride, and it became heavy on my heart about a month ago. It was like a weight that came on me, and I don't normally share a lot of these prophetic things, and I keep having people tell me, share them, share them, and so I will. And so, and I could hardly not think about it. I would bring me to tears many times in a day, just the weight for the way I could just feel the heart of God for His bride, the heart of Jesus for His bride, specifically in the United States, and how He feels about His bride, and the longing for Him. I see Him, sometimes there's times that the Lord wants to restore a truth or a word or something to His church, yeah? And I believe with all my heart that there's something, you say the word holiness, and it's like a bad word in some circles. But there's something of power, supernatural power, it's completely forgotten, and it's, I can just sense the heart of the Lord, the heart of the groom, He's wanting to restore this to His bride. He's wanting to restore this in many places, and it's like people have to be saturated in grace just so they can hear it today. And I believe that with all my heart. So I actually phoned some other just prophetic people, prophetic voices that we go back and forth with different things. And every single one of them that I phoned, some were from other countries, they said exactly the same, going through exactly the same thing. And they started preaching the same series on the same week. So it's just something that I believe the Lord is doing. And that gives me faith. It gives me excitement because I know that He's doing it. I know that he's doing it. So I ask you to open your heart. So I, I use the word purity, but it's the word holiness because there's two outworkings of the Holy Spirit. And today I, I'm going to do something I don't, I don't know if I've done before, something that the Lord put on my heart heavy this week. It took me quite a while to, to make sure it was him. It's just, I'm going to re- repeat quite a lot of last week. You know, and I once asked my dad, what was the most courageous preacher you ever saw. And he said, I went to a church on vacation, and a man stood up and said, today I'm going to preach last, last week's sermon again, because I don't quite think we got it. And he said to me, I thought that was courageous, so at least I can say that. But it's like sometimes when you preach, for those of you who do, you would know, as you grow in preaching, as you grow in, it's not just communication, there's you can sense something coming out of you and going into people or not. And this is something that I really believe God wants us to to understand and to have clarity on and to walk in because He's running to restore something. And there's a forgotten power, there's a forgotten, way long forgotten power in holiness. Because the two outworkings of the Holy Spirit, power and purity. It's the supernatural power, dunamis, explosive power of God, Acts 1.8, and you will receive power. But that power also comes to change you so that you can become a witness. It doesn't say you receive power to witness, but to become. And it's the two. It's the gifts. Some people call them gifts. The Bible actually calls them the manifestations of the same Spirit. He manifests Himself multiple different ways. 
through different people. And some of it has incredible physical manifestation. Some of it is healing. Some of it is supernatural understanding, words of knowledge, whatever it may be. There's a supernaturalness to it that we cannot do. That's the expression of what he can do, the expression of power. But he also desires to express who he is. And that's the fruits of the Spirit. You know, the fruits of the Spirit, love, patience, peace. It's like we want to teach our children that. We put it on the wall and that's helpful and it's good because, you know, when they're young, we need to teach them those things. But it is actually the expression of a person. Every spirit desires to express itself through a person, even a demonic spirit. Because they're counterfeiting something they see in the Holy Spirit, who is God. He desires to express His nature. That's the fruits of the Spirit. So there's two outworkings of the Spirit. First week, I spoke about the Lord's desire for purity, how it is polluted, and how it carries beauty. Those are all true. Holiness or purity carries a beauty to it that you cannot, it doesn't come from outward adornment. It is something that causes even a person to become, it's like they shine, they become attractive. Who knows what I'm talking about? It's the power of purity. And when the bride of Christ begins to understand what this means, they will cause the world to be attracted again to the groom. But it's not through works. It doesn't work. So those things are all true. What I said the first week, that's all true. But the process of becoming, the process of a person becoming something, or what I would call the pursuit of holiness, that's where everybody, not everybody, I've seen many people become very trapped in that process. Hebrews 12 says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You know, to fall short of the grace of God, if we don't understand this word and the power of the cross, the power of grace, people think like the grace runs out. And I'm not going to say, I said this last week because then I'm going to be saying that a lot. But to fall from grace, Galatians says, it says you have fallen from grace. And the context is that you've gone from the foundation that grace sets back to the foundation of what you can do. Falling from grace is not falling from his love or falling out of favor with him. It's, it's beginning to operate on your first nature again, even by doing the right stuff. What is the center of the old nature? Itself. Where does that come from? You know, I've explained it before. When sin happened in the garden, they were bent. There was something changed inside of them. The image of God inside every person as they're born, it was being bent. It's been marred. And the focus is self. You know, everything, they, it's self-preservation, self-justice. It's me, it's me. Where did that come from? Well, before the fall of man, there was another fall. The fall of Satan. And Isaiah covers what his nature looks like. And it's the five, what I call the five I wills. I will ascend to the Most High. I will ascend to the throne. I will be like, I will, I will, I will, five times. The Bible says you become a slave to whomever you obey. The devil has such a little bit of authority that if he, he had his own authority, he wouldn't have had to get agreement from Adam. Yeah? He has such a little bit of authority that he had to get agreement from man. 
because man is the one who God has given authority. The earth is the Lord's, but he has given man dominion over it, control over it. So what happened is when we, when Adam obeyed the enemy, he took on the I will nature and became centered around that. That's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, your father is the devil. He wasn't calling them Satanists. He was pretty hardcore sometimes, you know. He said, your father is the devil. Imagine saying that to religious leaders. I don't, you know, I don't think I'd be happy if someone said that to me. But he said that to them. He's saying, you're operating, you're doing the right things, but you're operating from the wrong nature. See, Jesus comes along and has the seven I am statements. Jesus doesn't say I will. He says, I am. I just am. And the Bible in 2 Peter, in 2 Peter 1, says this. We have been called by glory and virtue. That's power and purity. It's the same thing. It's gifts and fruits. We've been called by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us great and precious promises that through these we may be partakers of the divine nature. When we get saved, we become partakers, not of a divine nature, of the divine nature, of His very nature. We become partakers. And as we learn to partner with that nature, glory, His glory, and His virtue is released through a person. Because we've become partakers of His nature. Am I making sense? The process, people talk about the word holiness. It's very simply this. The process of becoming who God has already made you. That's what holiness is. It's becoming who God, who God says you are. Who God's made you. It's becoming that. So Jesus isn't, people say, well, you know, I've got to die to the world. He's just asking us to die to the things we were never meant to be. It's not this, you better be better. It, it's not that. So, we see a, this laid out in the tabernacle system. And I almost said I said this last week, but we'll pretend I didn't. There's a tabernacle system. There's the bronze altar or the brazen altar, the bronze laver, and then you go into have fellowship with God. And it, it's very important that we understand that they had to go through a process to, in a sense, draw near to the Lord. And Hebrews 10 mentions this. So it's taken into the new covenant. Now, we obviously don't have the law, but you first you go to the brazen altar, which is the cross. Represents the cross, sacrifice, the blood, which cleanses. It's, it's an amazing, beautiful thing. The scandalous power of grace. We're made righteous because of what he's done. It, it's an incredible truth. But then we go to the bronze laver to be cleansed, in a sense, from everything that the world taught us. So why holiness? As I said, we have to understand holiness is simply becoming who he says we are. And that's why in Ephesians 5, it talks about the bride. Actually, I'll read it. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. My wife always quotes that to me. Because I said, you know, the Bible says in the New Testament that Sarah called Abraham master. And, you know, we joke like this. We go back and forth. And she says, yeah, the Bible also says that, you know, you love me like you loved the church and gave his life. So I'm like, we're good. We're good. But why? As he loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That is the word rhema. That's the living voice. We have to understand, he cleanses and sanctifies us from the world, from these things. Why? Because he loves us. Isn't that what it says? 
He loved the church, so he. We think it's like because he wants to make us better so that he can not be embarrassed by us. I don't think so. It's because he loves us. I told a parable last week, and I'm going to tell it again, because I had many people come to me, they were just touched by the parable. And this is what holiness is. Think of a king, he goes, I saw this in my mind, and actually, just to give you a testimony, while I was reading this parable last week, we had a, a gentleman who was visiting from out of town who leads a church, and he came to me afterwards with tears. He said, this hasn't happened to me before, but while you were reading this parable, he said, I saw a vision. And he saw it in his mind, and he saw like a, a heading and a title, and he just sat there and wept. It's amazing. It's from a story. But the Lord put this parable in my head, and it's, uh, think of a king who goes to battle for the one bride who has his heart. And so the king looks in his kingdom for a bride, but there is none to be seen. And in his search, he discovers that the one foretold to be the love of his life was a child of royal birth from a neighboring kingdom. That's you, by the way. And she was stolen from this kingdom when she was a baby. That's you being born on the earth under the slavery, under the, the sentence of death. He leaves his throne to seek her out and to win her heart. That's what Jesus did. When he finds her, now imagine this in the real world. When he finds her, he pays the ransom demanded for her freedom, and he desires to remind her who she actually is, that baby of royal birth, but she doesn't know it. In such a way that he can free her from thinking she was who her captors had convinced her she was. But that's all she's ever known. He doesn't do this because she is not good enough for him, but because she is actually of royal birth, but she never knew it. She was raised by the enemy, and his strategy, please think of us now, was to convince her of terrible lies about herself and her heritage so that even if she were rescued, she may never be comfortable with ruling. I see that in the people of God. That man and woman of God, they have authority, but actually I don't, you know, not me, because I'm, you know, be listening to lies. That she may never be comfortable with ruling, thereby removing the threat of her being rescued or not. She has never exercised the rights of authority. She is not aware of the potential trapped inside of her, given to her by birth. How does this king remind her? Well, he speaks to her. He spends time with her. But even when he does, she snaps back at him, lashes out at him, accuses him of lying to her, tricking her, because she's never trusted anyone before. But he knows this, and he is patient because he loves her. He knows the day will come when she will believe him and learn to live in the royal ways of a new kingdom, not the slave ways of her old one. That bride is you. Or stewards of this king not the king himself, and by this it could be pastors, parents, teachers, and it's with a good heart. Please hear me, I'm not accusing. I've done this to people without meaning to, I'm sure. But stewards of the king, with a good heart, demand the change before she knows that she is loved, before she knows she is rescued, before she knows she is safe. That's religion. Before she understands that what she has was given to her by birth and cannot be taken away, they tell her what the king expects of her instead of how he feels about her. So this broken shell of a bride uses all her might to become what she thinks is expected of her at the cost of her joy, her beauty, 
and her health, so that even when she tries to use the authority she is told she has, no one really listens. Because they know she doesn't really know what to do, and she doesn't really know if the king will back up her edicts. And I look at that and I see the body of Christ there in so many places. Yet, the king wants you sanctified. He wants holiness back. Why? Because to sanctify actually means to separate. Sanctified means the state of proper functioning. We have to understand that. He doesn't want holiness because he wants us to be good little kids that run around and behave well. That, friends, that's religious. He wants sanctification because we are, he is separating us from something and placing us into who we are, into a state of proper functioning, because that's the freest we'll ever be. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, a pen sitting on my desk is still a pen, but when I'm writing with it, the pen is sanctified as it's in its state of proper functioning. So our husband, the true king, separates us from living under deception. That's actually what it is. It's from living under deception, under a slave master that desires our destruction. That's why he desires holiness. Now, what is the empowerment for holiness? I don't know why the Lord's asking me to repeat this. I'm still checking it with him. I keep sending a, Lord, are you sure? Yes. But it's very important because it's like I want to do this as long as it takes for people to actually go home and pick up the scriptures and read them this way. Because that brings change, transformative power. There's a lot of truth being thrown out in the United States. There's, I think it's half a million churches, but not a lot of transformation. Where cities are turned upside down and inside out. You know, I was talking to George after last week, and he said, sometimes when you speak about things in the word, the world has moved so far away, and this, it, that's actually them just following who they are. That's them following the nature. Pointing a finger at that is, doesn't help. Because we used to do exactly the same thing. And some still do. So it's not the point. But George and I were chatting, and he says, in the book of Acts, where they say, yeah, come the people have turned the world upside down. And he said, you know, it was when the world is turned upside down, they feel like they get turned upside down when they get turned the right way up. It's powerful. I was like, George, that's excellent. And that's what it is. And I'm, I'm preaching this here in my heart, and I know today isn't as much of a sermon or a just sharing my heart. Friends, I can feel what's coming. We are going to need wisdom <laughs> to know how it is to be His and to love people that hate you. To know how it is to, to say yes to the Lord, but love people that hate everything you're about. And love doesn't mean agreement. doesn't mean I have to celebrate you to love you. It just means I love you. There's going to come a wisdom and I see churches all over the world trading in truth for cultural relevance or putting things on people, putting things on people. They people, they, they have value, they, they belong to the Lord, but not showing them any empowerment, doing what the Old Testament did. You must do this and this and this without any empowerment. And I believe with all my heart, friends, as wickedness increases, so does grace. There's going to come, mark my words, that 
increase of demonic manifestations, the increase of the power of God, the increase of things taking place, it's like the supernatural is being opened up again to this nation because it was shut down a long time ago. But with that, things come out of the closet. And God is wanting to raise up a bride again that understands what it is to be loved by this king and how to live with him, how to be with him, how to think like him. Because the stuff is going to happen. I see it on the increase already. <laughs> Demonic manifestations happening in the church. Jesus never sent the man out of the synagogue. That's what we do in the Western world. Oh, they mm -mm, take them out there. Jesus dealt with it in the synagogue. I hope you hear my heart. God is calling us. He's, he's calling at people saying, come understand. You know, grace is so powerful. And to stay, just walk through the door of grace, salvation, and to feel that is incredible. Yet the Bible says in Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? None except he that has clean hands and a pure heart, has not lifted up his soul to vanity nor sworn deceitfully. He may ascend the mountain of the Lord. And it's not works. It's speaking about this bronze labor thing, this holiness thing that I'm trying my best to explain. That when he calls him and you look at him, he changes you. And you celebrate grace, not just at the bottom of the mountain. I can do whatever I want and I'm still free. That's fine if you want to do that, but you will stay immature. He wants us to come up. Come up here, the Bible says. Come up. Come up. And then we carry something. What is the empowerment for holiness? Well, it's not effort. I tried that. Most of you probably tried that. It just doesn't work. We come first to the brazen altar, that represents the cross. Then we come to the bronze laver, which represents cleansing. It's grace. The empowerment for holiness is grace, not demanding holiness. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. Unmerited favor. Titus 2 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, why is that important? Because the first thing that grace will do, it will actually empower you to obey. It'll empower you to obey. In the Old Testament, they had the law, but with no empowerment. It could point out fault, but didn't lift a finger to help. The New Testament empowers you to deny. Why deny? And this is where people say, you see, grace says you can say no to sin, and he's sinning, therefore... You. No. Stop that stuff. Grace teaches us to deny what? Ungodliness and worldly lusts. Why? The Bible in Ephesians 4, the Bible in Hebrews 13, the, I mean all over, Galatians, it talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And that, the lust actually means deceitful desire. He teaches us to deny something. Why? Because it's going to destroy you. Not because he wants you to be a good little Christian. No. <laughs> it's deceptive in nature. It's the lies of that, that slave master who stole you. So I'm teaching you to deny that, empowering you, because you're still deceived by it. It's taking you captive. That's why. 
He says, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that's the cross, that's the brazen altar, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. So the beginning of grace is that actually the first experience that you have of grace is you feel like, I can do whatever I want. I can just do whatever I want. I did that. I lived like that for a year. I thought it was a wonderful year. I was like, this is great. I do whatever I want. God's grace covers me. It is that powerful. I went on a grace diet for five years. All I did was study this one thing. It changed me inside. Changed me. So I can do whatever I want. But you know what grace does? Clicks on a flashlight and reveals your heart. It's like... Look at all this, you know, if you take a flashlight into the attic, it's like, look at all this dust that this flashlight created. No, already there. This just shines a light on it. And so sometimes you have people that have had a journey with the Lord. They've, they've gone through the school of grace, and it's a school, it's not a moment. And they've grown, and then they see a young person doing whatever and speaking Jesus, and they're like, you shouldn't do that. Well, you've probably just made it worse for them, because... The law increases sin. You've just made it harder for them. I'm enjoying this, I must tell you. It exposes what's in the heart. And it has to do that so you can see it. So it can come out. That's why it has to be allowed for a season. doesn't mean we celebrate it. It's got to come out. Because there will come a day. There will come a day when that person recognizes, I think I'm free. I don't feel free. Freedom surely cannot be going back to what I was set free from. It cannot be going back to this old master that desires my destruction. That's not freedom. And the question builds in your heart, then what is freedom? It's a good question. Grace will teach you, will empower you to deny what used to deceive you. But that's not the end of it. The end of it is it will change you. Grace empowers unto change. It changes you so that now you are zealous for good things. And you know that those good works is not just character. You know that it's the demonstration of power. Greater works you will do. John 14. He puts his heart. You know when the Bible says, I've written my law in your heart, and people think, you see, he wrote the Old Testament. in the... No, that's not what it means. It actually means, I've put my heart in your heart. I've given you my heart. And I've changed you. See, freedom is, I'm not doing it because it's, I know I shouldn't. I, I'm not doing it. It has no attraction to me. That's what grace will do. We're not going to get to the sermon today part of it, but I just, this is just so much in our heart. The church desperately, desperately needs clarity on this issue, friends. Desperately. Desperately, desperately. See, when a person gets saved, they come from the brazen altar. Think about it this way. A person comes through in the brazen altar, and what happens is they get there, and they experience the crotch. Things like redemption. I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed. They feel what it's like to be cleaned of an old sin to be snatched back, put into a family. They feel redemption. Then they feel expiation. 
Propitiation, substitution, justification, reconciliation, adoption, new creation. People say, oh, that's all fancy. You don't have to understand all those things. I would encourage you to because they're in the Bible. But that's what it is to become assured of grace. Expiation. That's actually just a, the appeasement of God's wrath. You recognize, I live under a friendly sky. Wow. Then you recognize propitiation. Not only did he take my sin away, he gave me his righteousness. I mean, it's God's righteousness, not yours. It, and it can't be changed. It, it, it cannot be removed. You, you have the righteousness of God, which gives you access. And that's justification. It says, because we've been justified, I have peace with God and I have access. Romans 5.1. And substitution. He didn't just die for me. He died as me which means I'm genuinely free with things like reconciliation. I'm not just a person in a court and, oh, okay, fine, someone else paid the price, you can go, but everyone in the community knows you're guilty. No, no, no. He removed the stain from me. Nobody even knows that I did those things. He doesn't just love me, he likes me. He wants to be around me. He's reconciled. He's, we're no longer at enmity. He loves me. Adoption, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. New creation, I have a new nature. This is the brazen altar. And sometimes people need to spend years there until they are sure. So that when someone comes along and says, yeah, well, you know, it doesn't shift him anymore. So a person's like, oh, I feel so free. And we go to the brazen altar and then we walk along and we're like, oh man, I'm just walking to the, this blessed presence and you know, just, I'm the next Billy Graham or whatever. And you walk in and then you come to this little bowl. Oh, what's this? So what's this about? This praise and what's this? And a lot of the church actually doesn't know. Or they're too afraid to tell them, actually, he wants to clean you from the world. And if they haven't been saturated in that, this will make them religious. So they, what's this about? No one's told me about this. What's this? So we go around it. No, okay. I'll just go in. That's what happens. Now, in the Old Testament, you couldn't do that because you would die. So they were like, yeah, we need to understand that. In the New Testament, you can because the curtain has been ripped and you can go straight into his presence. But it doesn't carry the same intimacy. It doesn't carry power. It doesn't carry as life. And I see many of the people of the body of Christ, they, they, they love the Lord, they want to go, but it's like, it's just something. So we pray, we whip ourselves, we do all the things we do to try improve. And he says, but I, I, I've given you a process. I even wrote it in the Bible. So it's like we come to this thing and we say, well, what's, what's this? A mature believer will say, take a look in the bowl. What was the bowl made from? Mirrors from a bride, from brides, from women who took it from Egypt put water in it. A bad steward. Someone who hasn't seen grace so much that it's actually made them gracious. They say, well, yeah, you know, you've got to be clean. I keep telling you. A good father, a good steward will say, take a look in the bowl. Just have a look. What will they see? Their reflection. And they will see who they really are because they've just come from the brazen altar. 
they will look into the word of God, which is the bronze laver, and they will see, wow, look who I am now. Look at, look at who I am. I'm made new. I am. Look at this. I'm new. That's what it means. And friends, focusing on what happened there is the way to wash the world off. It is. And we need to look deep, deep into the mirror. I'm going to read you a few verses. I really took a long time to prepare, apparently for no avail. But 1 Peter 1 verse 22, it'll come up, looking into the mirror. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, you see, well, you know, it's obedience. Yeah, but you know what I've discovered? Obedience, a lot of believers obey out of fear, a fear of obedience, fear from punishment, or to escape punishment. Or the fear of disappointing them, either people or God. And so the obedience is actually, it doesn't last. Because as soon as that feeling of the fear of punishment or the, as soon as that goes, I'll just carry on doing what I ever want. Hello? It just doesn't last. But I found obedience from love when you genuinely love Him, when He begins to turn your heart, change your heart through grace. Obedience from love has no self-ambition. It doesn't demand certain outcomes. It doesn't get offended when certain outcomes don't happen because you trust Him. So since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, you see, there it is, purified souls, again, through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love and another fervently, with a pure heart, having been born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. We'll stop there. When we look into the mirror of God's word, that's the bronze laver, as I've been explaining, it supplies health to who I really am. See, the way Jesus speaks to us is he speaks the real you into you, just like that king did to that bride. He speaks the real you into you. My desire today is so simple that people would make a shift in their hearts when they read Scripture and that they would read it. Because it's not an accusation. If you're still hearing an accusation, go back and start again. We need to start again. Unless we get in this, friends, it is the living Word. It is His nature. It has His power. It will change you. But it speaks to the new person. It doesn't try to fix the old. It speaks to the new man. And that changes how you read it. It's showing you who you are. It's looking, look, look who I am. It's extremely powerful. And it says, if you keep looking at it, James 1 says that. We'll get there. If you keep looking at it until you believe that's who you are, even though you don't feel like that, you'll change forever. He speaks the real you into you. He's saying, you were not who your captors said you are. You are not. James 1 says this, this is where we ended, well, sort of last week. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. You know what that means? It means the residue left, literally in the strongs, the residue left from your old nature. 
and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save. That word able is the power, it's dunamis, power, power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, so many people, even this, well, you need to do it, you know. It's... He is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. In a mirror, the word of God is a mirror. But if he looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's, the commentators will tell you that's the law of love or grace, and continues in it, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. So what is a doer? A doer is not this person who everything they read, they do. A doer is a person who continues to look until they believe. I've seen young men set free from pornography, which plagues so many. There's only one way that I've seen it actually last. And I've tried many things to help. With, you know, when we led the youth, it's, they all struggle. Girls too, you'd be shocked. You know what I started saying to these young men? Every time you do this, even while you've done it, or as straight after, sit, sit up and say, I'm still righteous. I'm righteous. I'm loved. Huh. People say, oh, how can you tell them that? All the people that did that got free and are still free today. Not God, I'm terrible. I'm sorry I did. No. Remind yourself, keep looking. Look deep into this. Who am I? Who, this is who I am. I'm not that. I'm this. I'm not that. I'm this. Friends, when you see that, you'll have grace for people that you've never, ever thought you would have. When people do things, you just love them. <laughs> Christ just flows from you because you know Him. Receive with meekness, that's humility. You know, I rewrote this verse, I rewrote it again this week, just in our language from the different Greek translation, saying this, don't believe the lies that are still trying to destroy you. That's deceitful lust in James 1. It's the residue that remains in you from your old slave master's lies, except with a soft heart, that's the soil condition, the incorruptible seed of your new nature. That's the implanted word. Mark 4, the seed is the word. Accept the incorruptible seed of your new nature as it comes from the Word, 1 Peter. Water the seed. What does that mean? Partner with this new nature. Partner with it. By looking into the Word until He makes it alive to you, then act on that. This is the power that turns every seed to fruit. This will completely heal. Who does sozo here? We have a big team. That word save, as you know, is sozo. It means made whole, means heal, physically heal, means complete. This process will heal your psyche, your soul. What is your soul made up of? Your mind, your emotions, and your will. This will heal your psyche, the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you make decisions will change. And it will actually simply just become who you are. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, that word natural, I said this last week and I'm going to say it again. Because <laughs> until we believe it. 
That word natural is not the word that is every other time natural or naturally in the Bible. It's only mentioned one other place. It's the word Genesis there. And it's a noun. It's not an adjective. It's the original person that God created you before the creation of the world and he made you and knew you that person before you were born under sin. He says, look until you see who you really are. It actually says it like this. Observing his original person. Look until you see that person. Friends, it's literally the Bible says this. Did you know that? The Bible literally says what I'm trying to explain. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says this. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, that's better said, where the Spirit is given lordship. Or when you learn to walk by the Spirit under allowing your Spirit to rule your soul. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. But we all with unveiled face... That's when Moses would turn to the Lord in relationship. He would take the veil off because he's no longer facing the Israelites. With unveiled face, beholding as... I had a mirror. This is really tiny. The bronze layer was a little bigger, but... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. It's talking about the Word. I look in the bronze. I behold and as in... When I look here, I don't see the glory of the Lord. I see a sweaty man. What's it saying? Beholding as in a mirror, that's the word, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. When I stand and I look at this with the right understanding, and I look, I look long into the law of liberty. I mess up. I look into the law of liberty. I look into it. Friends, I looked, I used to walk, pace, weep. God, show me. And then you see him. And he says, yeah, but that's you. You see him, and he says, yeah, but that's you. And it says, by looking, by beholding, you will be transformed. That's the word metamorphosis. Transformed. Keep looking. Because the gospel has given you a new root system, friends. (laughs) Don't try to clean the old fruit. Destroy that thing. Focus on the new man. I trust this is helpful to you. I've never done that before. A lot of repeat. But there's something that God, it's like I feel he wants to put a stake in the ground. Say, know who you are. Can we stand?